I have an idea. Yeah. Will you receive a poo transplant from me? Wait, for the shows, for the sake of the show? Yep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, with the theory being that your gut... What makes you think your gut flora is better than... Oh, it probably is. Mine's great. <laughs> <laughs> you can eat anything and I'm like sensitive yeah. to a whole bunch of shit. Yeah. Okay. Right. So we're going to do can this I be on- your Can I be your poo roadie? Well, for a one-time deal, sure. I think we should do it in a controlled environment. We should have it done properly. Okay. If you go to the, if you go to your like your gastroenterologist and you say I'm interested in a fecal transplant, and he says, he says yeah, he goes, well, this is what we do. You come in, we do this. You know, we have some stuff on 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 site. And you go, no, 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 no. I've got a guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've got a donor. Yeah. I've got a match. <laughs> I'm glad we have Same name. Yeah. Perfect. Team. It's easy. Well, our guts won't be too confused. No. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Jeremy's Iron. It's a science podcast about reason, research, things. And reunions. And reunions, of which this is one. Welcome back, Mr. Justin Bobbin. Thank you, Mr. Justin Zeltzer. Um, we need to talk about fires because yeah. we're recording from Sydney mm-hmm. and our whole country's on fire. We're currently holed up in your house here. We are not allowed to leave. We're on <laughs> full alert. Well, yeah, look. They told us to evacuate, and we said, we're not done here yet. We got a show (laughs) put on. Yeah. We need to put out some fires of our own. We're going, yeah, Uh, exactly. They said, we've got to put this fire out. We said, we got a few ourselves. (laughs) Yeah. Um, We shouldn't really be laughing because there there are people legitimately dying and people... Uh, suffering suffering losing their houses Um, I'm not sure what the count is up to I've just stopped paying attention not because I don't care but because I just I I can't handle it I went to the um, the rally on Friday Mm -hmm. uh, with decent turnout Mm -hmm. Uh, but yeah no there's there's really not much you can do sitting in your despite that we still have fires well yeah that's right I didn't rally put out zero fires unfortunately brought the rain though it did but what we do suffer from in Sydney town is a whole lot of smoke and that's going to start the beginning of this uh, this episode of Jeremy's Eye. Now, if you've just tu- tuned in and you don't know what you're listening to, it's a, a podcast that's about science. We usually come at each other with a particular scientific piece of research. Mm-hmm. Uh, me being a biostatistician and he, on the other side of his microphone, being a few things. That he is me. He's, he's a surgeon and a few other doctor doctoral-related Things. things yeah uh, yeah we try to surprise each other and well hopefully keep you updated as to what is happening in the world of science and other other related things that we like to and get into and deviate into but no tickling. at length no what no, no tickling no tickling t- well not this episode no no okay no, just just like uh we could science have- surprises yeah no physical surprises <laughs> oh i see what you're saying yeah yeah um, so what have you got to, before we start talking about, um, smoke, cause mm-hmm. that interests me at the moment. Yeah. Um, what is your main article that you're going to be dishing to me? Um, well, my main article was a, uh, fulfilling, coming good on a long standing promise we've had in the show, huh? which was to get into a bit more about the gut brain axis and autism. Okay. 
Good. And uh, there's a couple good papers, and I thought I'd talk about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. I think the smoke thing is far more pressing. I feel like a goober for even looking into the autism stuff. No, no, that's that's fine. Like I think we've, particularly people in Sydney and in Australia, we've we've kind of had um, an inundation, which is an interesting word to use there, but an inundation of smoke stuff, smoke new, smoke and fire news. Meanwhile, all the people in Sydney who are autistic are going, oh, great. Yeah. Now, no one's going to talk about us anymore. <laughs> yeah. Guess we're on the back burner right. again. Uh, well, it's funny. At least you've got something reasonably uh, medical. I'm talking about drummers. So uh, I love it. When do they get their time in the sun? Will they do now? Drummers uh, do it with rhythm. I'm or is that bass players? Well, uh, both of them tend to do it with rhythm. And we're talking, to, uh, we're talking about drummers' brains in particular and what happens to a brain on drums. This is your brain. This, this is your, your brain, brain on drums. drums. Exactly. Any questions? Yeah, exactly right. Um, so they're going to be the two sort of main articles. We're One be letter off of drugs. Coincidence? Hmm. Hmm. Uh, but Smoke Town, let's talk. What, what's um, for people not least living in Sydney? You've probably seen us on the news because we're we're making international news at the moment. There mm-hmm. is a huge amount of smoke that's yeah. uh, engulfing the city. But, I mean, that's secondary to the actual fires and de- devastation. Yeah, it's dwarfed the Brazilian fires of last year. Is Sign- that right? Significantly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I'm sure this is probably one of the... Is, is this not the biggest fire event that the world's seen? Um, it's the biggest sort of single fire season, surely, that the world's experienced. I mean, California's got enough trees, but... I think it's been bigger than any of the recent Californian fires. Yeah. I don't think the I don't know if the devastation's been quite as bad because I think it's been in less populated areas oh, sure. largely. Yeah, yeah, okay. But I don't know if it's the biggest one we've seen. Mm. It sounds like it very well maybe from the numbers we've heard. Mm. I actually heard a harrowing story from a friend of mine who's a listener of the show, Noni. Shout outs. Mm-hmm. Long time listener. Long time listener. <laughs> Many time caller. The South Coast has been just devastated by the fires yeah. and uh, her folks have a, have a house down there, thankfully in a valley. And I, I didn't know this about fires. But um, it kind of makes sense. But the fires, you're a little bit protected if you're in a valley because the mm-hmm. fires tend to sort of shift right. across the valley as opposed to sort of dropping in. Drop in. Yeah. Um, so you, you're kind of attacked by, by cinders or, you know. Um, Ash. Yeah, but things on fire. Yeah. Um, so you can kind of put out spot fires inside the mm-hmm. valley, but you tend not to be hit with the, the huge fireballs and okay. stuff. But yeah, like I mean, her her neighbors are in hospital right now, fighting for their lives and stuff. So it's it's yeah, look, it's it's personal. Elder, elderly neighbors, I assume. Uh, not not too elderly, but um, okay. yeah, they were fighting for their house. Um, That's the problem, isn't it? Yeah. Well, well, yeah. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to just let it go up. Anyway, there's everyone in Sydney, everyone in in Australia. I'm sure is one at least. I think the answer is yes. You let it go up because I I would be surprised if anyone in this current. Um, bushfire season has saved their house from a fire. Oh, dude, coming. you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. Uh, people have actually hundred percent. Really? Her parents have saved her house for sure. How? With the ho- with the hose. Come on, hundred percent, dude. This is happening everywhere. Like people are uh, preparing. Really? Yeah, getting getting rid of um, leaves in the in the gutters and um, making sure that their house is kind of ready to be protected. Sprinklers on the roofs, all those kind of things. Right. Yeah, I stand corrected. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I've only got anecdotal evidence mm. too, but one from one. Um, 100%. Yeah. I guess I was going to say that there's, there's everyone in Australia, I think, is sort of at most one, you know, two degrees removed from someone that's been deeply affected by this. Um, yeah. So shout outs to all the, uh, everyone working on them, the fireys, mm-hmm. support people, people who have, you know, 
um, supported financially and and our dear prime minister. <laughs> yeah, we're not there. we're not getting political on this show. No, but no, um, no, he's not in the in the best of um, been painted in the best of lights. Which is strange because he's shook so many hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm not sure how many hands you need to shake to put a fire out, but he's got to be getting close. Yeah, right. That's right. I mean, I don't. We don't know the numbers. We're not fire experts, but you know, he's got the ice cold handshake. <laughs> he does clammy. It's <laughs> just clammy hands that are putting out the Quick. fires. Scomo, yeah. we need your clammy hands. Yeah. Go, go, shake that fire down. All right, so a bit, a bit of a somber start to this uh, yeah. this pod, but um, I want to talk about smoke because it's it's fascinating me, particularly because we in Sydney have been dealing with um, numbers. Like numbers like 400 or numbers like 500 or 137 or Numbers we've never seen before. That's right. We've never cared about no. AQI, the nope. um, whatever that means, <laughs> the air quality index. Yeah. We've never cared about never it. Never cared about it. Recently. Never thought about it. But now we have uh, one of the worst air qualities in the world, temporarily at least. Um, we've had spikes of the worst in the yeah. world. Yeah. So my question is, how, how bad is it? Like you can go outside. It smells terrible. It smells mm. well. Well, it smells great. It smells great. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, hold, smells, hold your horses there. It smells yeah. incredible. Who doesn't like the smell of burning wood? But uh, it smells clearly, yeah. it, ain't, it ain't good for you. No. Um, but how bad is it for you, really? There are people that smoke and I'm, qu- I'm questioning, I'm like, well, am I any worse than someone that smoked maybe, you know, a couple cigarettes today? I know, or have, we, have we lived a clean life all these years only to find it thrown away, you know, yeah. for us by these the hot box country. <laughs> yeah. So there is a, uh, an app. I did a bit of a Googling and there's an app that converts air quality into a cigarette Brilliant. equivalence, yeah. which kind of makes sense because you kind of get the sense of what, like how bad cigarette smoking is. Yeah. And, you know, I did some reading as well and they say, you know, we don't really know right now. We don't know what the long-term effects of this are. Mm-hmm. There have been very few studies about people who've had chronic exposure to bushfire or to fire smoke. Um, we have numbers about people who've been exposed to uh, like indoor fire smoke from like fire wood burning heaters and, and ovens, um, and we obviously have numbers from people who smoke cigarettes. And oh, but mostly, what we have are short term numbers. We know that smoking, inhaling smoke, causes inflammation in the lungs. You're taking in particulate matter. Um, none of this stuff is good, and we know that in the short term, at the very least, it probably causes things like asthma or um, you know some breathing distress. Yeah, particularly people who are sensitive to it already, people yes. who have asthma and things like that. And so most of these numbers in terms of the hazards are quoted in terms of short-term risk. What will it do to you if you are, Are you? is it bad for you if you're a sensitized individual? Um, and when will you start noticing short-term problems as someone who doesn't have breathing problems? And mm. these kind of numbers give you an idea of that, but they don't really tell us much about anything beyond that in terms of what it means. Yeah. So, um, so, so to quantify in terms of cigarettes is a really good thing because really, what are cigarettes besides just one kind of plant that we've decided to burn? Um, practically, it's probably not that different in a lot of ways to burning any other organic material, which itself is going to be full of carcinogens and the particulate matter and all the things that cigarettes kind of, you know, yeah. dangerous expose. So, you know, I think it's a very good quantification. And also, it's something that everyone can kind of understand because yeah. you, you know your uncle that smoked... A- Pack a day or whatever, and your aunt just smoked less. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> for only a few years and stopped, That's right. and she's okay. That's so right. We, we can again. We have this idea, this you know, this heuristic hmm. for what cigarettes mean. Um, All right. So the the app is called Shoot I Smoke. 
Yep. SH asterisk asterisk T. That's right. Smoke. And so it basically gives you a city-based rundown. It's, it's got up-to-date air quality index information mm-hmm. and it's telling you if you're outside, this is how many d- cigarettes you're going to smoke in a day. Is that what it means? That's right. So if you're outside all day, you're smoking. So today, right now, our AQI is something like 120 or something. But here's a question for you that you keep on saying if you're outside. Do you think it makes a difference? Oh, absolutely. If you, what do you mean? If you're not... What, you, where does the air inside come from? It's Surely it's going to be equilibrating with the outside air. Uh, no, but but that's that's a really good point. But I think... I was thinking about this the other day, but I think there'd be some kind of just filtering mechanism if the air just takes circuitous routes to get in. Do you know what I mean? Like, nope. You, you I don't, don't see think so? Why. Nope. Same reason why the little paper masks don't do anything because the air just finds the path of least resistance. And just, it all, it move, it's in the air. It's not getting filtered. You, yeah, but you need like, you're hanging you out in proper, a... The only way to filter it with a filter mask yeah. are the ones that have a full seal over your face. And the only way you're getting air in is through an actual filter. Small cracks in windows and things like that don't constitute micron yeah, okay. filtration. Sh- sure, but okay. Here's my challenge to you. Yeah. They're particulates, right? That yeah. are in the air. Mm-hmm. Now, if you had all those particulates in a house, mm-hmm. wouldn't they just like eventually sort of sit on things and not actually be caught up in the air? Do you know what I mean? Like they're, they're, they're heavy particles, right? So if, if they're outside and they've been getting created by the fires and there's yeah. wind and it's digging them up, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. If you're in a house, no wind. No, like it, they'll eventually, eventually just like sit and you can vacuum them up without seeing them, right? I, and so you're not actually... Eventually, I, I, well, you don't breathe them because why, they're not kicked up into sh- the air. Sure. I mean, that's what dust is. Right? Well, it's, it's basically like dust, but, but outside, it's so dust small. Is, I think it's so, so, so small. We're talking 2.5 particles, 2.5 microns across and smaller, I think is what the, the PM uh, 2.5 yeah. means. That's fucking small. Sure. Which means that those things can probably stay, stay airborne a very, very long time. Here's my question to you. Yeah. Ready for this? Mm-hmm. I walk outside. Yeah. It's smoky out there. It smells like a, a, a nice, uh, you know, mm-hmm. lounge room fire. Yep. I come back inside. What do my clothes smell like? They smell a bit like the fire, right? Yeah. What does that mean? It means that the, whatever's happening, like the particles are somehow landing on my clothes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So just at, just extend that to a house scenario. All those particles are now landing on things, oh, right? But it's, why? Should, I don't it's outdoors, they should be on the ground too. Yeah, but there's wind. That's what I'm saying. Like the wind yeah. kind of like. I, I think it. Look, yeah. Eventually, I guess it would all just fall down, and you'll never be able to see it. But um, at this, whenever you move and walk, it'll all get picked up and pushed around. Anyway, I think we're getting to the two. We're getting too far in the weeds. I like now. it. I like it. But um, so, how many cigarettes are we smoking today? It was one point eight. One point eight cigarettes today, yeah. and that is. And today's been a bad day. Yeah, it smells. It smells today's bad. one of the. An average bad day that we've had, I'd say. Okay, so put in a different city. Let's put in... I did already. What'd you got? So, I went to... What's the smokiest city you've been to? The dirtiest city you've been to? Would you guess? Oh, man. Because uh, I've been to... The first one I thought was Delhi. Well, which is known to, Delhi, to have so, terrible yeah. air quality, right? Yep. Um, and a lot of the long-term studies have, are done in like Beijing and Delhi and places like that. Um, and so, a couple of days ago, in fact, when I was thinking, oh, man, should I go outside? The AQI is 500 today. It's terrible. You know, what do I do? Um, and then I realized that Delhi is as a day, like a yearly average of like 400. And I went to Delhi for a couple of days. So it didn't stop me from doing my stuff in Delhi. Yeah. It's just how it is for them all the time, all year round. So today or this week, 
Um, if you were in Delhi, you'd be smoking on average uh, around 11 cigarettes a day. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And that's just how it is. Delhi doesn't have a fire right now. That's just Delhi. Jesus. Yeah. Okay, so that's, you know, this roughly is the more than six five months times. of the year, though. And I think it drops about half that in the reciprocal side of the year. Um, but it's still, yeah, right that's now. That's a it's, lot. Yeah, it's a lot. Okay, so what about putting in um, uh, Taipei? Oh, yeah. I'm trying to think of other smoky cities, but that's the, I don't know why that that wasn't that smoky to be honest. But that's an island, so maybe, oh. point four. Yeah, so Taipei was very yeah. Okay, fine. What else we got? Um, Bangkok. This is this two, is two. So so we are actually less than what it is in Bangkok right yeah. now. Okay, but at the same time, it was uh, the air quality was four times as bad in yeah. a few days ago. Mm. So that that yeah. would have. But only for those. a few hours, really. That's true. Okay, well, that, that's tell, that's anyway. sold it. I'm just going to not worry about it anymore. I think <laughs> I'm going to smoke some cigarettes. That's go and smoke this some is, cigarettes. If the, the moral of this story is that cigarettes aren't that bad for you, no. really. So like, once this all dies like, down and we get back down to like, you know, fractions, like yeah. 0.4, like we're like Taipei levels. We'll smoke a couple smoking, cigarettes a day. You can start smoking the difference. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because like, you, yeah. you feel pretty good right now. I'm fine. So how about this? Uh, we get to 0.4.2 you have one cigarette you're still ahead of where we are today perfect that's Jeremy's iron that's our, that's our uh, evidence based smoking <laughs> yeah yeah. health recommendations this is based on this is science man this is PM25s and AQIs move, move, move to New Zealand and then smoke a couple cigarettes that's what, that's what we're going to tell you yeah although annoyingly for New Zealanders they're copping our smoke yeah they smoke must be smoke is so bad that it's traveling not the, even the their fire no ah well we support their economy anyway so who cares <laughs> All right. Uh, anything else about smoke? That's. I mean, that was. Um, I'm curious now about the, the smoke indoors because the, the recommendations are always to stay indoors, right? Sure. And, and to me, it just makes sense that it's going to be less. I think will happen. It'll, it'll buffer out the massive spikes in smoke. So, for example, if it was you know 100 or so AQI for a period of a couple of days, and we had that massive five or 700 spike mm-hmm. three days ago, um, you wouldn't be getting the full brunt of that massive spike. Mm. is my interpretation of that. Um, at the hospital, though, where we have nice long hallways, you know, we have like 200-meter corridors. Of course. In areas. Yeah. Um, you can see the smoke. Really? Oh, yeah, when it was when it was like on the bad days. You, you can, can, ins- you can oh. inside. That's crazy to me. Yeah. Well, then how, why, why, when I walk outside, am I... And those things are pretty hermetically sealed, those hospitals. You know? Sure, I would have thought so. Yeah. But why do I, when I walk outside, get confronted with the smell of, of smoke whereas it, it's so clear when I walk outside I smell the smoke when well, I'm inside I still think it's worse outside especially yeah. if there's a, the, the, of course the times you notice a smell are the really bad mornings right when it's jumped up suddenly it just hasn't had time to diffuse into your house yet mm. I think that's the reason it's still higher outside but you're still living in the background Right, so I've got I've got some uh, information for you. There's a, a spokesperson for the Department of Planning, Industry, and Environment in New South Wales. We're back live. The recommendations here, if you have smoke inside your house, if it gets in, is one to use an air purifier. Okay, fair enough. I've got one. Yep, I haven't turned it on yet. <laughs> now might be a good time. Second one, use an air conditioner because apparently they're not as effective, but they can st- they still might do a bit of good. Yep. The third one is cleaning. Clean your house because it says if smoke has gotten to your house, it will settle on floors and other surfaces. Okay. Then give the house a good clean and that can help out. So maybe my theory about um, being indoors where there's no wind to, to kick stuff up yep. is actually better than being outside where you know the, the smoke's continually just yeah. 
Sounds circulating like it. In fact, I will. My house has felt a lot dustier over the last few weeks than normal. Mm. I cleaned the bathroom like last week, and it's already like just covered full of like probably ash. It's yeah. really what's, what's yeah. settled there. All right, should we get to some uh, other science? Let's get to some other science. Some other science. After the break, uh, we've got a little musical interlude. That's what we tend to do. And then yeah. let's go gut brain first. We'll gut talk brain. dramas at the end. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. Coming back in just a few seconds. for sinking great what do you want let's talk gut What's, brains gut brains brain, gut, gut I, brain or brain gut i got brains i got gut let's go let's do it so we've we've broached this a couple times in the podcast we keep on talking about food a couple of papers we've had especially in the news just in segments have kind of mm-hmm. sort of talked a little bit about this gut brain axis and diet and microbiome and all this kind of stuff and we've have had i believe we had the the autistic mouse fecal transplant paper, which we discussed very briefly at one point. I want to uh, say that's episode 12. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, um, hold on just a second. Yep. 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 So, yep. We've, yep, we've talked back. about all that shit. Yep. All right. Um, so, what were we, yeah, we talked about gut. We talked about brain. Um, so, I found the paper that might be sort of the landmark paper looking at the relationship between the brain and the gut. Mm-hmm. We've probably long had some ideas, and there's been lots of anecdotal stuff about it, but the first paper that I think really sort of um, drew attention to this was this paper in 2004, yep. so quite recently, called Postnatal Microbial Colonization Programs. The program is the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal system for stress response in mice. Sure, I got right? that, easy. Yeah, so that's in the journal of physiology. Now, what these guys did was, it's really interesting. So we've had this idea that um, gut microflora, the microbiome, can affect mood and behavior and all kinds of things like that, right? So what is the best way to characterize that if you want to do a study with mice? To characterize the mice? Yeah, you want to kind of define what that means, you know? Well, inspect their guts. I mean, it's not not to do with twins this time. Well... (laughs) It's, it kind of is in the sense that when you do mouse experiments, they're essentially genetically identical. Right. For, the, for all intents and purposes, they're, genetically, they're, they're all clones of each other. Okay. I didn't actually so, know that. But. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons why mouse studies are so effective is that they're essentially genetically um, homogenous. How? Wait, how? They've been bred so many times and so deeply inbred and they've okay. been and such controlled breeding that while they're not true clones like you actually might see some small differences in hair color and things like that between them they are genetically incredibly similar okay so what's good for the geese is then good for the gander etc yeah yeah um so what they did was they said okay if we know that um a certain combination of bacteria in the gut are good for you or we think they're necessary for something what if we bred mice 
that had no bacteria in them at all. Okay. Right? Fine. Don't, so they, get, a, don't they then just get attacked by... They, bacteria is useful to you, aren't it? It is, but they grew them. They, in, they birthed them and grew them in a completely aseptic environment. Okay, so fine. Completely in, in, so in a mouse they, hospital, essentially. In a mouse hospital, basically, like, the kind of room they put you in if you had a bone marrow transplant and you were sure. completely yeah. like you know immunocompromised. Yeah, they create these little rooms for the mice, mm-hmm. and so the mice never were exposed to any bacteria at all. Not good, not bad. And then it's like could, a hyperbaric chamber for mice, except not not really. Except not really. Okay. <laughs> so a cha- yeah. Normal barometric pressure. Got it. Fine. Um. So really cool, right? And then they compared some to they compared those guys to just regular old mice who had normal whatever gut flora and whatever else, and to another group that had a really only one specific bacteria, or they tried to control for only one very specific bacteria, um, and they put them through various um, experiments, usually involving stress, and they tried to monitor their reaction to stress, mm-hmm. um, both physiologically and I think also using um, hormone markers as well. Mm-hmm. So they'd put them in a stressful situation and then measure some biochemical markers and hormones. Uh, And they found that the mice who had no bacteria encounter at all um, were very sensitive and didn't, had a very, um, very poor response to stress. Or, okay. or a very good response to stress, which means they stressed out big okay. time. When very, they were a stressful exposed. response. Yeah. So they had very poor coping mechanisms, whereas the mice who had normal gut flora, or at least some bacteria in their gut did much better. Interesting. Right. And then they found that they did a transplant at a young age, a poo transplant, fecal transplant, from the... The good bacteria. The good bacteria mice. Yeah. That these mice seem to largely bounce back and exhibit much better responses to stress. And these stress responses are actually the same kind of tests they do on uh, children or mice who don't have strong parental attachment. So... Kids who've been abandoned or don't, who are kind of the victims of parental neglect, they tend to have high stress responses because they don't have that early childhood fostering mm. and connection to a parent. Mm. Um, so they have these kind of altered abnormal stress responses. And this is actually a very similar reaction that they have. So the theory is that a normal gut flora um, is almost kind of just as important as having a strong maternal paternal bond as a child. Right. And proper rearing in that sense. Is there an effect where the um, improper rearing or a stressful youth actually then affects the gut flora? Oh, well, it's quite possible. Right. I don't, we don't know. And to some extent, this is trying to, to work out... Like which, which what follows chicken what? Chicken or the egg. Yeah, exactly. that's right. Yeah. So in some of the autism papers, they know that... Um, if we can get into that later, we can get into another episode. There is a lot to talk about with this. Maybe better to split this up into two things. Sure. Um, but the idea is... Anecdotally, when they started looking through um, kids with autism, there's thousands and thousands of people out there with autism, we don't really have a necessarily a diagnosis of what autism is. We're getting closer to what we think might be a genetic, some genetic markers, some mutations that might be highly associated with autistic-like behavior. Uh, and those people tend to also have something like a 90% incidence of gut issues. Okay. Um, and those gut issues are actually fairly discrete in terms of hypermotility, um, you know, upset, uh, quicker gut motility so they kind of move food and wind through faster and sort of irritable bowel type symptoms with mm. them but it's very very high correlation between the two mm. um, but the question has always been is that the result of their autism that's right is it because to me it could be autism yeah there's the gut flora the result of their weird motility issues or the cause so you kind of have these three things which is you have your autistic symptoms you have your 
gut colonies and your gut behavior. Mm. And it's like, which one is which affecting which? Is, is the, it the genetics yeah. behind everything that's affecting all of it? Does certain motility patterns affect the kind of gut flora you have and vice versa? The re- answer is it's probably a complicated interplay between all three. Yeah, but it's an important question to answer because if it's the case that your gut flora can then affect your amount of autism that you experience yep. or whatever, yep. then we can solve a lot of problems by just through the gut and through even if we only understand a part of this axis of yeah. this triangle if we can start treating one corner of it then we can actually start to make a dent into what's happening mm. and so this paper is trying to look into kind of start to kind of tease out cause from effect yep and so they kind of started from the very beginning and started with no bacteria and just looked at bacteria alone and then moved forward looking at stress responses and things like that um and we've had a lot more papers since that that have been very good for characterizing and trying again trying to tease out some of these differences um but they also found importantly that if you transfer the bacteria or did a full fecal transplant too late in the life of these kind of um germ-free mice um it didn't work nearly as well so it's, it's still important not just about having those gut flora but having those gut flora at the right time in your life because clearly they have something to do with neuroplasticity and neurodevelopment in the brain. Interesting. Okay. So you still right. need, whatever it is that they're doing, you need that during your development the same way you need love and affection at a certain window in your life without which you'll never really fully recover from that. Um, you can have a child who's been deprived of love and connection for the first couple of years of its life and you give them all the love in the world after that it's it'll never better. substitute right. the the brain development they, they get when they have that love and care at the right time which is really interesting so it, it works very much so these are kind of like our little belly parents that's that's fascinating like that's little, actually fascinating and, and basically this this could really become a real feature of um like medicine provided to infants and yeah. and you know wow and the bacteria they're using the one they found to be the most effective um the one that they grew only in one of the mice strains. And when they transferred, when they tried to colonize these germ-free mice with just a single bacteria, they found that one bacteria they used had a very pretty good response of rescuing these mice from that behavior, from that autistic behavior. Um, it was essentially the um, bacteria you find in your cult. No. Shit. Yeah. Um, is it the KCI Sirota strain or was it um, it's Lactobacillus? It used to be called Lactobacillus. It's not called Lactobacillus. It's called Bifidobacterium infantis. Yeah. And that seems to be, in many studies, the bacteria that's the most implicated in um, in all this gut access stuff. So the, you need a healthy presence of Bifidobacterium amongst many others. Right. Um, and these things. And the idea, the interesting thing is, when you wonder what happens, uh, why would these bacteria be so important to the gut? Um, from what we can tell, we have, they say, it, there are more bacterial cells in your gut than there are eukaryotic cells in your body. So, What's a eukaryotic cell? We're eukaryotes. Humans are eukaryotes. Yep. That's kind of, that's our, when, that's where our, our cells or something. Yeah, split off of the big tree, right? Yep. So you have prokaryotes and eukaryotes, yep. right? Um, which means we have a nucleus and a cell wall, I believe is what makes us eukaryotes. Mm, okay. Um, and makes us not, not mushrooms or something, exactly. right? Yeah. Although I think maybe mushrooms are also eukaryotes. Uh, I forget. Whatever. Anyway, Fine. Yeah. Anyway, we, um, there's more bacterial cells in our gut than there are eukaryotes. So we're actually, we're more bacteria, bacteria than we than are. human. And so one paper said it's no surprise that what they do in our body 
it's going to be hugely important for us, right? I mean, if, if every other cell in our body produces hormones and chemicals and is either making or receiving them as part of some homeostasis, right, mm-hmm. to affect change or to affect behavior, um, it's no surprise that you have more cells sitting there. They're not doing nothing. If they're not harming you, they're probably doing something really important. Yep. And what's happening is they are digesting the unused carbohydrates. Um, when you eat food, you get food in your stomach. Not all that gets digested properly, whatever bits the bacteria can get their hands on, they'll digest themselves, they'll ferment it. And they'll end up actually producing various chemicals as waste products, essentially, of it. And those can more or less, are either very similar to or act as hormones, like neurotransmitters in our gut. So they are possibly a very useful kind of manufacturing plant for some of these neurotransmitters that might affect our mood and affect our behavior and things like that. Um, in fact, we know that the vast majority of serotonin and dopamine in our body is actually located within sort of the neuro gut axis. So it's all kind of down around here. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So it's not a surprise that our mood is so deeply influenced by what's happening. Um, what do you call it? Poo transplanting mm-hmm. stuff. How old is that? I mean, I know that's sort I don't of hit, know. hit the news over the last couple of years. Yeah. But this whole gut brain axis thing is kind of becoming more and more of a, a studied phenomenon. Yeah. So the poo I mean, transplant. It seems very sound. So it seems that way, doesn't it? Yeah. There was a paper that I don't know if we covered this paper specifically, but there's a paper that came out just last year and they had um, 18. It's not a great study in that it's only 18 people, candidates. They were all given the um, fecal transplant. They're autistic candidates. And they were rated on a autism spectrum severity scale before the study in terms of their behavior, in terms of their gut problems, all the kind of different ways you can sort of you know, define their illness or their, um, or their disorder. And the initial paper they studied, they were followed up in a few months after the fecal transplant, and they found a fairly significant improvement in all their symptoms, both behavioral and gut and, and otherwise. Hmm. Um, they recently published a two-year follow-up to that, where they got all the original candidates back in and who had maintained more or less the same diet and not much had changed. And they got self-reported studies, self-reported numbers, as well as their parental reported numbers about behavior and things like that, and found as much as a 35 or greater percent improvement in symptoms in all these people two years down the track. Yeah. From, wow. uh, from, and many of these candidates across certain parameters no longer classified as being autistic spectrum anymore. That's, am- that's amazing. Yeah. So something like in one by one parameter, 20% of the candidates were no longer... No. 20% of 18 people, right? It's not a lot of people. <laughs> it's not. That's and, and they did say, they, they acknowledged that their own paper that there is a high chance of placebo error because all candidates knew that they were um, experimental subjects and what to expect. But they said it has been two years with sustained results from that, um, mm. um, from that experimentation. So who knows? Hmm. looking kind of promising. Well, there was that highly publicized, well, reasonably highly publicized um, uh, Sydney musician that uh, yep. Dave we from spoke about Boy that. and Bear. With Boy yeah. and Bear? Yeah. yeah, Boy and Bear. Yeah. Who, I think he was dealing with, the, uh, I don't want to paraphrase because I can't remember the story, but I remember thinking it was some debilitating psychological yeah. conditions. And he'd been doing it for like two years. Well, it's actually, I, I heard I from, a, from a friend of his that yeah. it was basically a year. He had a, a friend of his who had good gut flora. Yeah, I know. He had his poo fol- Yeah. A poo roadie followed yeah. him around for a year, pooing yeah. into a um, basically because it needs to be fresh, of otherwise the bacteria will die or whatever. Of so um, you basically have to poo into a bag 
and then on a daily basis and then uh, Dave would have to take a bit and put it up as his own pooper. See, and, that's um, strange because these guys, I, that's not what was happening experimentally. They weren't having daily for a year. Yeah, They're right. having single time. Typically, it's a single time thing. Right. Um, I think you go there, you have a colonic, you try and wipe out as much, you kind of nuke your own. It's sort of like doing a, a bone marrow transplant. You try and nuke as much of your natal flora with antibiotics and a, an enema or a um, yeah. uh, bowel prep as possible. And, and then throw in someone else's junk in this case. <laughs> yeah, and let it take over. It's the same thing. Um, and it seems as though a lot of the, re- the science behind it seems very sound, hmm. you know, in terms of what we know now know about having no gut flora versus some gut flora. And we also know that when they've done analyses of the feces of guys with autism, well, people with autism, it's lacking that specific bacteria that we spoke about. It's, this is amazing. Or, it's, I'm, or I'm, it seems to be low in yeah. that. So for whatever reason, whether it's their behavior or where whatever happens to their gut, for some reason, maybe it's not conducive to maintaining that bacteria or, mm. but if you put it, we don't know. What they do know is that they think they found a, um, a mutation that seems to be quite common amongst people who have autistic spectrum behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, when they start to characterize what that mutation does, um, I said they know that it causes the autistic behavior, but they try to, kind of characterize all the other things that I might do. And it seems to have a lot of gut implications. And one of the things it does is it, it sort of seems to affect how neurons pack themselves, how closely neurons can pack themselves. So you mm-hmm. get this sort of packing density issue with neurons, which allows them to communicate more effectively. And when they have a mutation in this one gene, they tend to not sort of order themselves in the same way, which would make sense in sort of what we know about autism. But it also makes sense in the sense that it means the gut's not going to be working quite as well. So the same way you won't be firing the same way with your central nervous system, you're not going to be quite firing the right way with your gut nervous system, Mm. which is the enteric nervous system, the ENS, as opposed to the central nervous system, which is the CNS. Okay, you're losing me a little. But But the point is that it means that their gut nerves aren't firing quite as well. And the results are very similar to what you'd expect from people to have who have autism, which is um, kind of altered... Uh, motility, which means the gut's not moving the same speed or the same way as normal people and not doesn't empty as well and all these kinds of problems and stuff. So um, we may be getting closer to a genetic route to this, but the interplay between the genetic cause and the consequences in terms of flora and whatever else and how much you can undo the genetic problem by force changing the, the, the actual, environment yeah. and stuff. It's all very interesting, right? Watch this space. Yeah. We might just turn our entire podcast to a gut brain, the gut brain podcast. Honestly, we could do it, man. We could. Because it, for all the things we've spoken about, and we've spoken about some pretty the poop dubious, cast. It is a poop guest. We've spoken about some pretty sketchy science. What do you mean? No, I guess not it, supported. Not right? supported. No, but we've spoken about yeah, all yeah. kinds of you know, alternative things. Yeah, and we, whatever we, else. And we, we've uh, revealed it. We've, uh, yeah. Yeah. We've unmasked it. That's right. Uh, and this is one of those things that sounds a bit like an alternative, you know, you got to eat right, drink your cult, you know. Floss you your you teeth can, to get You can directions. fix autism if you, if you drink your cult. Yeah. And, you know, you get your, get your poo on track. And it seems to be true, for at least for certain things, that there's a huge scientifically backed um, relationship between how what bacteria you have, how they're functioning, how your gut works, and then consequently how your brain works. Right. And so I think we're still just scratching the surface of what that means and what we can do with it as a therapeutic option. But <laughs> I've, I've got a good name. Maybe we could just have a segment. Could the, could the segment be called Poops, I Did It Again? That's pretty good. It's not bad. I, the idea being that you're pooping someone else's poop. 
I have an idea. Yeah. Will you receive a poo transplant from me? Wait, for the shows, for the sake of the show? Yep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, with the theory being that your gut... What makes you think your gut flora is better than... Um, it probably is. Mine's great. <laughs> <laughs> you can eat anything and I'm like sensitive yeah. to a whole bunch of shit. Yeah. Okay. Right. So we're going to do can this I be on- your Can I be your poo roadie? Well, for a one-time deal, sure. I think we should do it in a controlled environment. We should have it done properly. Okay. Um, if you go to the, if you go to your like your gastroenterologist and you say, "I'm interested in a fecal transplant," and he says, he says yeah. he goes, "Well, this is what we do. You come in, we do this. You know, we have some stuff on 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 site." And you go, "No, no, 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 no. I've got a guy. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a donor. Yeah, I've got a match." <laughs> <laughs> Same name. Yeah. Perfect. It's easy. Our gut won't be too confused. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. You know, like, and people get like these really strong bonds where like, you know, someone's donated a kidney or whatever else. Now, I'm not really quite ready to give you a kidney or something yet, but I think this is a good start. It's not bad. And you could be like, uh, this is Justin. He's actually... Um, imagine it. Imagine my- I like I just became this superpower of, of anything or mm. any of my, you know, insecurities gone. Well, you have uh, it'd almost be not worth it for me because I'd have you to thank. Do you know I what know. I mean? You, you, <laughs> You'd hold it over for me. For I while. wouldn't. I'm not like that. Uh, no, you wouldn't. But you know what? Like people in orthopedics, right? So I do bones, and people who don't, most people actually, when they, you know, they go, oh, you know, saving lives, or another day saving lives, and I'm like, it's bones. We don't really typically save lives ninety something percent of the time. We save a quality of life. Yeah, that's sort of our branch of medicine, right? Yeah. But what is a life without quality of life? You can argue there is no life if you don't have a quality of life. To sure. It, right? So when people talk about like, you know, you can be a kidney donor and you've saved someone's life, right? Sure. But they may not have a great quality. That's a great thing. You've saved someone's life objectively. That's absolutely true. What with a poo transplant? What if I could save the quality of your life? Same thing. It's, it's as good if not better in some ways, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Saving lives one poop at a time. Yeah. It's pretty good. I'll do it it for you. Pooper man. (laughs) Hmm? Pooper man. Come on, man. Like Superman? Oh, yeah. Right. You kidding me? No, I didn't. I didn't didn't get get that one? No. No. Okay. All right. Let's do it. All right. Done. Uh, So, by the next show, I'm going to be shoving a bit of uh, my co-host's poo up my own... No, if that is the stinger, I don't know what is. That's right. All right, let's have a little break and I'll start talking drumming. How about that? Yeah, do it. All right. about the effect of music on the brain playing music not just listening because you know that there's obviously a sure. lot of a lot of people that say uh-huh. you've got to listen to music beethoven for the mind all that kind of business mozart effect mozart effect yeah. i'm talking about the playing of do you know anything about how that affects um, the brain um no i don't i assume though that playing music would put you into some sort of a flow state mm-hmm. and you'd have like um increased are they delta waves 
Um, in the brain? You, got, you come at it from a different angle, which potentially is also true. Right. Um, but I'm just talking about what parts of the brain are being mm. activated when you're playing. I have to say that probably the pre-singulate gyrus would be particularly activated. <laughs> okay. Potentially... I'm not sure, but <laughs> but the, what this? Um, oh, is it the post singlet gyrus? You got it. Uh, <laughs> damn it! Yeah, of course. Um, of course. The corpus, Drums. the corpus callosum. Uh huh. Do you know what the corpus callosum mm-hmm. is? So, so we were discussing that yesterday. You and me, uh, or is it or two days ago? The corpus callosum is the connecting stock between the left and the right hemispheres. Correcto. Which is what you would cut if you were trying to treat yes. old school old school epilepsy things. Yes. And the result of that would be your split brain. Ah, okay, that's true. So the, the corpus callosum mm-hmm. is, as you described it, the, the link between the two halves of the brain. Now, playing music, the art, the art of playing something in time with some kind of emotional content to yep. it, it actually lights up both sides of the brain. All these different compartments sure. of the brain light up, right? Yeah. Tempo. That's on your whatever. That's the left yeah. the left side. You got yeah. the right side, which is activated because yeah. it's the you know the artistic component or yeah. whatever, right? And also, you're using both your left and your right sides of your body, which means you have to integrate yep. both those movements, which means you're using both sides of the brain for that. So, yeah, you'd be firing everything. Yeah. Um, so, we know that because of that double activation, musicians' brains actually have some kind of like, if you're a bit of, you know, a decades-long musician, it yep. actually changes the scope of the brain, the scape of the brain, sure. right? Now, this particular paper focuses on one type of musicians, uh, uh, the type of musician that is often left out of a lot of these discussions, which is drummers, right? So, can I ask you a question quickly about all this before we get into the drumming part? Sure. Based on what we, what we just talked about, yeah. Which is so, if the neurodevelopmental benefits of learning music are so high mm-hmm. in terms of how your brain can grow and connections can be made, and it sounds like it's wholly a good thing for your brain to learn as a, at a young age. Well, sure, yeah, right. As a parent, what is your biggest priority? The benefits of learning music on the way the brain works generally or the risk that your child might end up playing drums on buckets in a train station? <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering where that was going. It's like, that if this was, works out yeah, well, okay. they could be a brain surgeon. They could be the prime minister <laughs> of the country. We're, we're it's a high risk play. Brain. But, but if they like it too much... yeah. They could be the, the, the bass player in camera four. <laughs> At which point, what the hell was the purpose of having such a great brain? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Right? That's it's tough. A it's, it's tough, a gamble. isn't it? What do you do? I mean, I've always said, don't teach your kids instruments because there's a high chance they'll end up playing um, shitty instruments in train stations. But what, what do you do? I don't know. Do I do? guess you're going to have to show them. High like, risk. Um, the the lifestyles of aging rockers, and I don't mean aging rockers that are still rocking. Asian I mean, rockers, aging rockers. Yeah, because I don't know. It's a, it's a sad life when you get to forty or so, and you've had your hits and, and, and your, 20s. your creative juices dry up. Yeah, and, and yeah, mm. you're still releasing albums. Show the kids that, and be like, okay, get into music and stuff. But come on, come on, really? Don't 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 reach for the stars. Yeah, you won't get there. Come on, <laughs> you've got to um. Teach them to play instruments. How about this? You teach them to play instruments at a very young age, but never expose them to actually any good music. <laughs> so they have. <laughs> so, That's dangerous too, though. So they get all the benefits of learning how to play an instrument, yeah. of, of, of structuring with music and all that kind of stuff, but they don't actually ever learn any. So they have no reason to ever play it again because they're like, well, this music sounds like crap. No, they'll keep playing it. So I think that's going to backfire on you big time. Yeah, yeah because they're going to keep playing the music that's real shitty and loving it. 
you know what I mean? Oh boy, that's even worse. There are there are like career musicians such as people in, for example, sta- I'm trying to think of those like terrible Canadian <laughs> bands, the Stained and those like. I don't think Stained's Canadian. Are they? No. <laughs> okay, I don't know why that was Stain's the first one that came in my though. head. Uh, anyway, can we talk about the paper? Yep. Talk about drummers. Yep. yep. Boom Chack Boom. This is actually the title of the, uh, the paper. Boom Chack Boom. Mm-hmm. A multi-method investigation of motor inhibition in professional drummers. Motor inhibition. Okay, go on. Motor inhibition. That's right. Okay, so um, basically they studied uh, a bunch of drummers. Unfortunately, this is an open access situation. Mm-hmm. And now if you had to guess what the N was going to be, or how many numbers of drummers do you reckon we're sampling here? It's not, it's not 26. It's 20. Yeah. So it's not, it's not amazing. But like at the same time, it seems to be, it's not too bad. Mm-hmm. Um, the drummers they had in the study... Um, they they measured their their brains, yeah. and these are drummers that, on average, I think, were profession, professional drummers of seventeen years mm-hmm. in the profession. Um, they actually had fewer fibers connecting the tract between the two halves of the brain. So that's the um, what's it called? Corpus, corpus callosum. Corpus callosum. Yeah. So they had some sort of a corpus callosal atrophy. Well, they had the yeah way. fewer but thicker fibers. Oh, uh, okay. Um, and their mo- their motor brain areas are also organized more efficiently. Right, whatever that means. I don't quite. I'm not being a neuroscientist. I'm mm-hmm. not quite sure exactly what that means. Yeah. Um. But the deal is, when they actually they they monitor their brains when they're doing any type of motor based task, mm-hmm. and they compare that to the controls. Right. Non drummers. Yeah. And they see that when the non drummers are doing some fairly basic motor tasks, a lot of their brains are kind of lighting up and doing things. Right. When the drummers are doing it, bugger all's happening in their brain because they're kind of like everything's so neatly organized that they're cool picking up a glass in one hand and doing something else in the other hand is totally fine low level they also brain activity appreciated fred armiston's stand-up comedy for drummers a whole lot more (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly i knew we were going to talk fred armiston at some point Mm. um so yeah so basically what drumming does for you in a long-term sense is it organizes your brain such that motor tasks become much easier for you. Other motor tasks. So in, in some ways, it sounds like it's actually disintegrating the hemispheres. That's right. Of the brain. It is. It's, so you're it's, able to function independently, left and right, more. Yes. More more easily. That's right. Yeah. Um, which is, I mean, it kind of makes sense, but it's an interesting study that yeah. they actually it is very took cool. drummers yeah. and figured out, well, what's, what's going on in their brains? Um, why, did you, like, why did you decide to play drums? <laughs> I don't know if science can reveal that. One sec. I'm just going to look for something. So, yeah, that, that's kind of it. I think the, the other sort of um, thing that this paper is trying to suggest implications for is that um, patients that have motor disorders, yeah. th- th- this knowledge that we're gaining about what what complex motor tasks oh interesting i think i know where you're going with this now yeah right well actually well maybe you can tell me because it only really says a few little sentences by the end but it says that uh, long-term learning of complex motor tasks could lead to substantial restructuring in the restructuring in the cortical motor networks which Mm. could also have interesting implications for clinical patients for clinical applications for patients with motor disorders yeah so right so if you've got movement disorders right where you're having, well, for example, imagine you have a seizure. I guess there's one sort of a movement disorder, but kind of not necessarily really. But you can have uncontrolled firing um, across the brain, right. spreading across the corpus callosum. If your brain gets used to not just sending information back and forth across that or 
or again, disintegrating your, not disintegrating as in, well, I guess disintegrating your movements, um, you might have more sort of cortical control over your seizures and or over your movement. So it's probably less for seizures, more for things like people who have cerebral palsy or Parkinson's or things like that, who have yeah. uncontrolled movements, right? Where they get these sort of stereotypical whole body movements, right? Where their whole body is sort of gyrating and yeah. there's people like sort of dance like movements sometimes. So is the cure to get him and try to get him to Teach learn him to play drums. Deep Purple's Fireball? I don't even know what that song is. Oh, you have to listen to the beginning of Deep Purple's Fireball. Really? Come on. Yeah, yeah. Right. I'll show um, it to you after this. But yeah, I guess the idea is if you can establish higher what's called cortical control, so which means the outer layer of the brain, which is kind of your, um, which uh, is your sort of voluntary control over things. If you have better access to your body movements through your cortical control, or you can inhibit movements better, mm. um, then maybe you can do that with involuntary movements as well. And you can mm. have better organization of your sort of uh, muscle movement. That could be really, and a really mm. interesting. Drumming for the cure. Yeah. Poo transplants and drumming. We're, we're getting towards some sort of really holistic, earthy, yeah. scientifically backed, treatments right we should because on a clinic where you teach me a drum i give them my poo <laughs> we're, we're gonna fix people i like it jeremy's iron <laughs> jeremy's iron alternative medicine not alternative medicine well medical clinic okay jeremy's iron medical clinic I medical like healing clinic okay that's good we treat we treat you with science not medicine Great. I like it. Well, that's been the show. If you dig us, we're on the net. It's jeremyzion.com. Uh, feel free to write us an email. If you, if you got any sort of feedback slash particular science, you know, subject matter and you want dealt with. If you want to support us in more tangible ways, yeah, get fucked. We don't want your money. That's right. <laughs> we're not doing this for the money. No. That's why we haven't given your you- Your money's any, not good here. That's why we you haven't know what? given you any options to give us money. If you want to support us, donate to one of the many fire-based um, yeah. causes that is happening in Australia right now. That is if you're outside of the country. If you're in Australia, we'll get your money through taxes anyway. So don't worry too much about we're it. All good. We're all good. All right, well, catch you around. We'll see you next time. We uh, You're about to go overseas, so we'll I am, probably yep, be a couple of weeks. Tomorrow. But, yep. Um, I'm getting out of this hellhole. Yeah. One would say like you're a traitor, but... I like getting it. Yep. I wouldn't say that. I'm crossing the line. Yeah. I'm crossing the, uh, the picket line. Mm. All right. All right, see you guys. Adios. Right. Shit, this has been a while. It has been. 2020. It's been a minute. Been, it's been, yeah. It's been a month or Let two. Me, we started recording in 2018, this podcast. Right. It's so true. We've spanned all of 2019. Do we get something for that? Is it, nope. is, does, does Apple the, Podcasts give us a platinum thing in the mail? I think it's coming. Yeah. Yeah. That we can, we, <laughs> they value we our can festoon on our website to yeah. make everyone impressed that. We've lasted a full calendar year. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Jeremy's Iron. Gregorian calendar year. A, a total Gregorian. Wait, is that right? Are What's Gregorian? Are, are we on the Gregorian? No, no. Calendar? We're on no? the Roman calendar.
Is the Gregorian a Roman calendar? No, I think this is... No, 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 no. So we left Gregory's calendar? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Gre- yeah, the Gregorian calendar. It used to be in the back seat of a car. So were the Romans like, dude, Greg's calendar sucks. <laughs> Can we start our own? I'm so tired of Greg's calendar. Uh, you anti-Gregorian? I think you're right, actually. The Gregorian calendar is a calendar used in most of the world. Yes, sir. Okay. Thought so. Fine. It's a modification of the Julian calendar. So we've gone from the Julian... To the Gregorian. 